0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I will drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter once said, Nowhere is God so near to man as in Jesus Christ. And nowhere is Christ so familiarly represented to us as in the holy sacraments. So there is a phenomenon you might have heard of that all, almost all of us are influenced by. It is called the <coughs> Mandela Effect. The Mandela Effect is defined as an unusual phenomenon where large groups of people remember something differently than how it actually occurred. In other words, lots of people who are familiar with something will misremember the details about it. For example, in the movie The Empire Strikes Back, there's a scene where the protagonist, Luke Skywalker, is having a lightsaber battle with the antagonist Darth Vader. And in this scene, the weaker, inexperienced Luke has his hand cut off, and he is clinging to an overhanging structure on, you know, hanging above a huge drop. And in this scene, Darth Vader begins to talk about Luke's father. And Luke said, you killed him. And Darth Vader says famously, Luke, I am your father. Except that's not what he says. Actually, he says something very different than, than that. Now the majority of people familiar with the movie, the vast majority of Americans who have seen the movie multiple times, believe that's exactly what he said. So much so that's how it's remembered even in popular culture. This is this line, "Luke, I am your father," has actually been quoted in several different movies, like *Rain of Fire*. They actually—that's how they say it: "Luke, I am your father." And the same way with TV shows as well. That's how that line is always remembered. But Darth. Vader never says, Luke, I am your father. What he says is different, right? See, what happens is he offers to have Luke join him. And Darth Vader says, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke responds with, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. And Darth Vader said, no, I am your father. Completely different in tone, completely different in message. Right? He never says the words, Luke, I am your father. He says, No. Right, I am your father. Now, some of you will probably have to go home and watch this, you know, on television or look it up on YouTube. How about this? Let me just save you the trouble, okay? Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. You killed him. No, I am your father. No. No. it's not true. That's impossible. Many of us have misremembered the details like this. We, misrem- we misremember a lot of details of things that we're familiar with. We remember things incorrectly. Right? And there's a number of reasons for that to happen. But this phenomenon, I want you to understand, it, is not an uncommon one. Right? There, there, this, the fact is there's a number of things that we feel that we know pretty well right, that we are actually wrong about. There are details about those things that we just simply remember the wrong way. From cartoon logos to movie lines to familiar songs and even historical facts. Right? There are things that we believe that we know that we're wrong about, at least in the details. Now, I want you to, to know that I am personally guilty of this phenomenon. I used to think that Darth Vader said, Luke, I am your father. Right? I used to think that Curious George had a tail. Right? I used to think that Mr. Rogers said, it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. That's not what he says. It is not what he says. Listen to the song. It's a wonderful day in this neighborhood, not the neighborhood. You've been singing it wrong your whole life. <laughs> right? Right? And don't believe me. Go, just check it out. In fact, it, it's so prevalent that in the movie that Tom Hanks made about Mr. Rogers is he sang it the wrong way. He absolutely sang it the wrong way, the way that people remember it. But, it's, but if you listen to the original song, when he, the way he would sing it is this neighborhood. And, uh, and I used to believe, right, things like the Bible would say, like, you know, that God helps those who help themselves, right? How many used to believe that? That's what the Bible said, right? Or, or the Bible says that the Lord works in mysterious ways, right? That's, I used to believe that's what the Bible said. There are lots of things that I have personally been familiar with that I've misremembered the details about. Like this text in this story right here we have before us. There are details about this story. Even how we explain this story. And even what this story means that many of us have been wrong about in the details. There are a number of things about this, but our understanding of this text that are influenced, not so much by what the words actually say, but what our culture and what our traditions and what our assumptions are, are uh, putting on us. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but even as I read that, I still stumble at certain points because my mind wants to fill in the blanks of things that I've heard before in other versions of this. Right? There are assumptions that are driving for many of us to have some details that are incorrect, and the reason why I mention this is because I believe that we should pursue understanding the Word of God as it is written. Right. This text right here is not just some text about some details. This is a pivotal moment in this narrative, right? and it's the basis on which we build our understanding of one of the most important elements of the Christian life, the Lord's Table. The doctrine of the Lord's table, which is called the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, which means, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, right? The Lord's table is one of the two ordinances that have been commanded by God himself, by Christ himself, that the church faithfully observe. The church is commanded to baptize new believers into Christ. And the church is commanded to observe the Lord's table amongst the baptized members of that church. In fact, our statement of faith in Article 7, titled Baptism and Lord's Supper, actually says this. Christian baptism is by immersion of the believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial to the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to the faith In the final resurrection of the dead, being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite to the privilege of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. It is not A little issue, right? This is one of the statements in our statement of faith that deals with this. The Lord's table is is an important part of Christian life. Now, the 1689 Linda Baptist Confession of Faith sees it so importantly. In fact, I personally subscribe to this confession, and we're going to grow to learn more about it as time goes on. But it sees this is so important that it has a lot more to say about it. In fact, it talks about it in two different chapters. Chapter 28 of the Confession, we see a brief summary statement that reads... Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in his church to the end of the age. These holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. And then in chapter 30, it's such an important doctrine that it takes eight paragraphs To describe this doctrine in the London Baptist Confession of of Faith. Now, we don't have time to go through all of those things, but just allow me to read for you the very first paragraph that I think encapsulates the spirit of this doctrine. It reads, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night that he, he was betrayed, it was observed in the churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and a display of the sacrificial, the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with Christ and to each other. So it's, this is important stuff, right? And so this text then right, is more than just part of the narrative that we learn from. This is the foundational text on which we establish a practice of our worship of Christ. This text is not descriptive, it is prescriptive. This is a commandment of Christ that we do this in remembrance of him and his sacrifice. This is an ordinance that we we participate in, and we are rehearsing the essence of the gospel itself, the real sacrifice of Jesus Christ in time and in, in space. It's a regular, tangible reminder of our hope that was secured for us in history a historical event that actually happened. And it's an integral part of Christian worship. And so it's important that we get our understanding of this text and our understanding of this doctrine right. And so with that, we're going to do that today. We're going to really look at this. We're going to look at this text and see where Jesus institutes the Lord's table. and, And we're going to then afterwards receive the Lord's table. Now, before we jump in here, Let's remind ourselves of the context, because the context is super important for where we're going here. As we know, this is Thursday night of Passion Week. We're nearing the very climax of Mark's gospel, right? as as Christ's betrayal is now but hours away. We're we're, we're at a point where things are going to change rapidly, and they're going to change drastically within a couple hours. He's going to be arrested soon, and his death on the cross is less than a day away, less than 24 hours away. And so again, we're going to move quickly to the main conflict. But not only that, this moment in time is just after a very emotional and energetic part uh, of the story. Remember, Jesus rides in on Sunday just before this, and he rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem to people shouting Hosanna, right? and and people the city's electric because Jesus is proclaiming by his actions that he is the Messiah and the king and the very next day he comes in and pronounces judgment upon Israel and her leaders and the temple itself and he drives out the merchants from inside the court this is a very very energetic very high energy kind of you know time i mean this is a point where the conflict is growing This is followed by Jesus being confronted then by several different groups of people who try to find a way to get him arrested, but he puts them in their place because he's too smart for them. And then Jesus after that predicts the destruction of the temple and the city which by the, which must have gotten the, the 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 disciples you know on their toes with anticipation like what do you mean this is going to happen and they would they would have never thought something like that could happen but Jesus talks about when that's going to happen and he talks about his imminent return at at the end of the age now but at this point in the story though it's like the kind of like the, you have the high and now the low before the big conflict. This is like the calm before the storm. Jesus now is in this room that's been supernaturally prepared for him, by the way, with his 12 disciples, and they're about to partake the Passover meal. Right, this is a festal meal And it's a meal that they have taken many, many times. This is like us looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Or or us looking forward to Christmas. This is the high mark of the year, right? This is that, so this would have been a very time, a time of peace for them, a time of where they're reflecting and a meal that all the Jews everywhere were celebrating in the moment. You know how in Boron, like after a certain point, everything just kind of rolls up and like everybody's like gone off the streets. This is what it would have been like. Everybody's in their homes. Everybody's observing the Passover, right? All eyes are on the Passover at this point. And so there's a lull in the activity. And so that's the serene backdrop for Christ and what he's about to do. Now, the problem for us, I believe, is that what we have is when we look at this story and we think about the Lord's table, we have a view that's too flattened out right, of what's taking place here. I believe our understanding of this text and our doctrine on the Lord's table is just too condensed because these verses are really short and they assume a lot that we're just not familiar with. And I believe the reason why we, it's that, that way is because I think that we tend to rush through this story. We read this and we're rushing through it. And I believe that for three reasons. Number one, it's our familiarity. Our familiarity with this story is actually an impediment to us. Right? We know, we know what this part of the story is about. We know what the elements are for. We know it's the body and the blood of Christ. When we read that, we know that's where he's going. We know that's what he's instituting. Right? This is a subject actually we're familiar with because we talk about it every single month. Every single month we come back to this and we talk about it. So we're all familiar. We we eat the bread, we drink the we drink the juice. And so we kind of blow right past it. Now I think that we should actually do this more often. And as we study the, the Lord's Table more and the doctrine of that in the future, I think what we'll probably end up doing as a church is actually make it more of a central part of our worship, and we'll do it more often. I think it's because it's such a super important symbol. But the thing is, is it's actually an impediment to us that we know so much about it. In fact, you remember the old saying, familiarity breeds Contempt right? It's this idea that if you know a person or a situation too well, it's easy for you to kind of lose respect or become careless in that situation. And it's the same with the scriptures. It's the same with Bible stories. In fact, oftentimes you'll read books. There's a phenomenon that most Christians face is when you read a book, right? And you're like, oh, this is great stuff. And then they quote a scripture and you know what the scripture, you kind of like want to just read Past it quickly so you can get to what the author is saying. That's a common phenomenon because what happens is we're so familiar with the Scripture, it's almost like it doesn't have anything new to say to us. We don't stop and read it. Well, this is what happens here. We become so familiar with the text, we take it for granted that we know what it's talking about. Number two is the fact that by, by this point in the Gospel, we are rushing with the story to the cross. As we've said before over and over again, Mark is a fast-moving narrative that is moving quickly towards Christ's passion. In fact, many commentators have said that the gospel of Mark is a passion narrative with an extended introduction, right? Because it moves very quickly, and we tend, by our own desires, want to get to the climax of the story, right? That's the part we we, we know that it's going, so we want to get there. And so in the process, we rush past some of the details. And then number three... For us as Gentiles, we don't realize or think about the historical background of the Passover dinner. As Gentiles, we just don't think about what's actually taking place in that room at the time. I mean, we know that they're eating together. We we know that much. But really, many Christians would just assume all there was to to eat was bread and, and wine, and that was it. That it was just basically, you know, there was grape juice and some wine, and Jesus said some stuff, and... You know, that's the sum and the substance of the supper. But there's a whole backstory to this meal that we really need to begin to come to terms with and keep in perspective. Otherwise, the significance of what Mark records here for us is going to be lost on us. And if we don't you know, understand the background, the Lord's table is just simply going to become this quaint little ritual where we eat some bread and drink a little thimble of, of, of rape juice once a month. The truth is, a lot is happening that we need to wrap our heads around. And so we're going to begin with a little historical background. And the first thing you need to understand is that contrary to what some people might tell you, this is a very real Passover dinner. Jesus is having the Passover. Some scholars, you know, especially liberal scholars throughout history have disputed that and want to say that this is a different meal, that the that the, the Passover was on a different day. This, it's not, all the evidence points contrary to that. The textual evidence, the historical evidence point differently to that. Jesus and his disciples are having a traditional Passover dinner, and the Jews, right, I mean, that's what they did at that time. And as such, their meal was not just, hey, here it is, come and get it. This was a highly symbolic event, which means that the meal itself and all the things that happened were scripted, highly scripted in detail, This is a tradition that they've been practicing for thousands of years. And so there was a fixed pattern to how this supper was to take place, like like for the fact that there were four cups of wine for this meal. And the reason why there were four cups of of wine is because each cup represented one of the promises of God in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. The first cup represented the promise of God's rescue from Egypt, the second cup, represented the promise of God from, uh, to deliver them, for, uh, to give them freedom from slavery. The third cup was the promise of redemption by God's power. And the fourth cup was promised of a renewed relationship with God. I'm going to tell you right now, if you didn't know that, Right? Now that you know that, your understanding of what's going to happen in this supper is going to change. And some of the things you might have had questions about why Jesus did what he did, you will understand with greater clarity. Now, most scholars agree that Jesus makes this statement in this text at the third cup. And we're going to talk more about that and why that is and why that's significant. But with that, the Passover meal... Would begin with a blessing over the group itself followed by drinking of the first cup of wine and then the youngest child or a member of the group would ask the question why is this night different than any other night now obviously this story is about the Exodus but given the context of what's happening and what would soon happen here that question is even more meaningful than it would have been any other ordinary passover night even if the disciples didn't realize it because traditionally the passover night was about remembering the exodus being you know being delivered from bondage but but from now on passover and the lord's table are about the greater exodus that's about to take place that is a truth that we need to understand the exodus in the old testament is in view here but 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 that event in the past is now a symbol of a greater exodus that's about to come. The exodus of God's people from the kingdom of darkness. There's so much symbolism here, it's even harder to describe it. You see, we must come to terms with the fact that what God has done in the past through Israel, all of that points forward to Christ and this moment. And all of it are fulfilled in his finished work. And so this question, why is this night different than any other? This question is actually more important than, than usual. Now, traditionally, the question was answered when the father or the host of the, the Passover, which would be Jesus here, they would recount the events of the Passover. Right? This means that, that this was not something somewhere where they just started eating. It was a deliberate, rehearsed ritual that pointed back to, to the history of God's redemptive work but this time the supper had a new and greater significance. Now, in this retelling of the story, the symbolism, before they would eat, of the various elements would be interpreted. The Passover lamb is the blood of the sacrificial lamb that protected the people of Israel from the angel of death. The unleavened bread is the quickness of God's deliverance. The bowls of salt water, tears shed in bondage. They also represented crossing the Red Sea. The bitter herbs represented the bitterness of captivity. And then you have, again, the four cups of wine, promise that, that there were four promises of God. Now, as the, the celebrants would, would rehearse and remember these symbols of the Passover, the celebrants would also recall the covenant that God had made with Abraham, a covenant that was renewed with Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, right? And that covenant promise of the seed of Abraham and the, and the seed of the woman in the garden that would bless the nations and ultimately crush the head of the serpent. It's all pointing forward, all of it, to the victory that's going to be found in Christ. Even those, Even though this supper looked back into history, It was still always looking forward to the Messiah. And here Jesus, the Messiah, is presiding over this this final Passover meal for these men. This began with the breaking of the bread. So this recounting of the glorious events of liberation in the Passover story ended with the drinking of the second cup of wine, and that would mark the beginning of the actual eating part of the meal itself, which would then begin with the bread. This right here is where our text picks up. You see all that background that we had no idea was taking place that's actually building on itself to this point here. You see, as we begin this text, there's just a lot of stuff that Mark just assumes that his audience understands and knows. Now, with that, let's take a look at the text itself. It says in verse 22 And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. You see, the eating portion of the meal began with the bread. And notice that he says, It says that he took bread and he blessed it. Now, when we read these words, we don't realize that this is still part of the scriptural ritual. I mean, the scripted ritual that, that they, they did every year. And this blessing that Jesus would offer wasn't so much that was a blessing of the bread itself. It was a blessing to God, the one who provided the, 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 the blessing or the bread. In fact, the blessing would go something like this. Praise be to thou, O Lord God, sovereign of the world, who causes bread to come from the earth. Now, the reason why I mention this is because the fact is the focus of all of this is upon God and also because this is part of the normal meal. Right. The taking of the bread, the blessing it, the breaking it, the distributing it is part of the normal meal. And in light of that, there are some things that we think, I think we need to come to terms with in the way that we have, I think, maybe and understood some of the symbolism here the breaking of the bread even though we tend to focus on that was a normal part of the Passover activity it was a normal part of any meal actually because when they served bread it was always served whole never pre-cut never pre-sliced i mean the whole thing about you know you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Pre-sliced bread is a relatively new invention in, in history. Right? The bread was always served whole, and then it was broken right before distribution. And the reason for why, why this is important for us is because we want to understand the text, what it's actually communicating to us, and not what our traditions or our assumptions have conditioned us to believe. You see, the Gospels never say, I want you to hear me, okay? Just be patient with me. The Gospels never say Christ's body was broken for us. They don't, they don't say it. It's not in the text. Matthew says, take, eat, this is my body. Luke says, this is my body, which is given for you. None of the Gospels say that his body was broken. It's, it's not here. But the thing is, is we will hear preacher after preacher, including this preacher right here during the Lord's day at the Lord's table saying, this is the body of Christ, which is broken for you. You and I have heard that many, many times, but that understanding is not in the Gospels. It's not there. When you read the text, it is not there. This comes from our tradition. Now, you can keep that tradition if you want to, but I want you to understand it is a tradition. It is not what the Word of God is actually teaching us. This is how we've been conditioned to understand what Christ is doing here. Our traditions have given us a preconceived idea that we're reading into the story. We must be careful when we allow ourselves to do that. When we read Jesus' words here, take, this is my body, our minds fill in the blanks and say, which is broken for you. It just kind of like flows off of our tongue. This is the Mandela effect. The Gospels never say his body was broken for us, ever. They don't say it. Now, pastor, Jesus broke the bread. Yes, he did. But he would break the bread all the time whenever they would eat. But isn't this a symbol of some kind? I mean, he broke the bread, and the bread is his body. The reality is we can't... Read that much into the text. We have no biblical warrant to read that much in the text. Breaking the bread was simply a normal activity, and the Gospels don't say his body was broken for us. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. I know that there's somewhere in the Bible it says that Christ's body was broken for us. And in fact, it says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Let's take a look. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you which remarkably sounds exactly like Luke's gospel, which it should. Luke and Paul were compatriots. It's not there. You see, it comes from our tradition. A tradition from another tradition. And that tradition is the King James only tradition. That's where that comes from. You see, when you read the King James Version, it reads actually quite a bit differently than every other English translation known to man. In fact, it reads this way. It says, And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This right here is where we get the idea. It's from the King James Version of the Bible of the text that we have all read many times. Right? And then we take this that we read in first uh, first corinthians chapter 11 and we read that back into the gospels that we read now i want you to hear me on this i love the king james version of the bible it's actually the very first version of the bible that i read all the way through many times i know many verses that i've memorized in the king james version And the King James Version is a wonderful translation for its time, and it has served the church for many, many, many years. And I believe that people who hold on to it and want to read that by itself, that's fine. Read it, because it is a wonderful translation of the Bible, right? But here's the thing. There is a reason why virtually all other English translations don't reference the broken body in this text. And the reason for that is simply this. The King James is translated from a manuscript that has a textual variant in it. Which means that reference to the, to the body being broken is not in the original. It's not there. It's not the words of Paul. Paul did not write those words down. Right? And and, and 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 now the words were ultimately either interpreted or inserted by a scribe along the way as the manuscript was being copied and passed down. Now I don't have time to go into all the technical difficulties or read like a couple of papers on this subject on which, you know, manuscript tradition is the right one to follow here and how that works and how we know what we know. What I can tell you with confidence, if you want to do the homework, you can certainly do that, is that Paul didn't pen the words the way that the King James records it. This is another area where the King James Version is simply just incorrect. And the reason for that is because the manuscripts that they were working with at that time just had it wrong. The the reality is today we have more manuscripts than we've ever had, and we can actually look back in history and see those men did a great job with what they had to work with at the time. But this is one of those areas where it's just not, it doesn't bear itself out. And so this tradition of presenting the bread as the broken body of Christ is not, right, is not in the text you see, it's about the body of Christ, not his broken body. It's something that we uncritically read into a text from a tradition that we have been taught. Now, why would I take so much time to talk to you about this? Because, frankly, I don't even like talking about the, the, the stuff with the King James Version, because invariably someone's going like, to email me or, or, or hit me up on Facebook saying, Pastor, you're wrong. And, and I, you know, I appreciate people telling me they're wrong, but I would just appreciate if people tell me they're wrong to be willing to read the books. to, to go back through and point out why i'm wrong right so but it's important for three reasons number one we as christ followers who love the word of god should always endeavor to understand what the word of god actually says not what we think it says not what we want it to say not what we grew up believing that it said right we, we, we must be willing to abandon traditions in order to actually hear what the word of God is actually teaching. I, as your pastor, want to present to you nothing more than the word of God as cleanly as I possibly can to the best of my ability. I want you to hear what the text is communicating. The English words and what they're saying and what the Greek words and what they're saying. I want to communicate to you what the authors of the text actually wrote down. That is my responsibility. My responsibility is to give you the straight truth to the best of my ability. My job is to give you the unvarnished truth. And that means doing the work to discover what the text actually means and presenting it to you, even if our understanding Ends up stepping on the toes of our traditions and assumptions. And I want you to know, like, this is one of those areas that has stepped on my toes, okay? Because I saw it differently before. This is important because I want to get it right. I want to stand before God and tell them I told them the truth. Number two, this is important because the Bible itself makes it clear that Christ's body wasn't broken. The Bible goes to great pains, actually, to make that point. One of the prophecies about Christ that was fulfilled in him is that he would be killed on the cross, but not any one of his bones would be broken. That was one of the prophecies that they looked to. Right? And the fact is, the Gospels verified that fact. The truth is they didn't have to break his legs like like they had to do the other men on the cross because he was already dead. This was important for fulfillment of this specific prophecy. His body itself was not broken. Now, it is true that Christ was beaten and battered and bruised beyond recognition. And his crucifixion was horrific. And he suffered horribly. But it doesn't say that his body itself was broken like into pieces like we would we would think with the bread. And so to hold on to this tradition theologically actually has the potential to create confusion at best. Number 3, this is important because we want to understand what Jesus is actually getting at when he's saying what he said. Right? If we focus on the tradition of the body being broken, we end up missing something else that he's trying to tell us. We end up focusing on the broken body and what that represents, and we miss what the whole of his body represents. In fact, one commentary puts it this way the significant action of Jesus was the distribution of the bread, not the breaking. The, the bread represents his body, i.e. his abiding presence promised to the disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, and the words became a pledge and a real, to, of the real presence of Jesus whenever and when, wherever and whenever his followers celebrate the supper. The bread was the promise of Christ being with them. That's the essence of the promise. You see, the the bread was not simply about his fleshly body. It was about his whole person, the whole person of Christ, not simply just part of his flesh. It was about all of him. Jesus, through his actions, here is promising to be with them, and the bread is a tangible symbol of that presence. As my understanding has grown of that, my actual celebration of the Lord actually is heightened because of that truth. I mean, this was a comfort to them. And it is to us that we take the bread and we're reminded that the person of Christ, a very real person in history, in a very real way, is perpetually with us. If there is a truth that you need to meditate on to stay your mind in troubled times right now, it is that one. When we take the bread, we're reminded of the truth that God, the Son, Christ himself, is with us. That's the hope on which we rest, by the way. That we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. This is a picture of the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. This is a picture of the promise that he will always be with us, even to the end of the age. That no matter where you find yourself, and that no matter what you find your, your circumstances of your life to be, Christ always abides with you. He is with you. Now understand, please understand, I'm not denying the sacrificial nature of what Christ is saying here. Actually, on the contrary, I'm confirming it. You see, the bread is a picture of his whole self. His whole self. The whole person. He gave his whole self for us on the cross and held nothing back. He didn't just give part of himself. Do you understand that? Like, Christ gave all of himself on the cross. Christ doesn't just give part of himself. He gives all of himself to redeem his people. This is the picture of Christ's sacrifice, the nature of his sacrifice. That's why that's the reason why we say you ought to be all in for Christ because he was all in for you. The bread symbolizes the complete person of Christ being given That's the picture here. But the promise that is presented here, the one that we ought to hold on to, is that Christ is ever present with us. And the bread of the Lord's table celebrates that. I don't know about you, but that is a truth that stays my heart and my mind that no matter what I'm going through, even now as my mind swirls around, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? That Christ is with me. Richard Baxter, I'm going to take you back to what he said. Nowhere is God so near to man as in Jesus Christ, and nowhere is Christ so familiarly represented to us as in the Holy Sacrament. What a beautiful promise the bread offers us. Now here's the thing. If you in your mind want to continue to hold on to the thing about it being broken, and you understanding that he was beat and battered and bruised, that's fine. Just understand that that's... That, that, that you're holding on to that because, because it means something to you, not so much because that's what the text is communicating. And I know for me, what I want to do for you is I want to make sure that what I teach you from here is, what, is something that I can absolutely stand behind here. So let's look at verse 23. Mark writes, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now this right here, just for a quick note, this is the third cup of the dinner, the promise of redemption by God's power. Remember, you had the first cup, they recounted the exodus, you had the second cup, then the Passover meal began, and then now you have the third cup after the, the food is done. And that cup was a symbol of God's promise to redeem his people, which is appropriate for what Jesus actually says next. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, there is a whole lot to unpack here just in this one little verse here. But before we get to that, we need to understand something else. This was not even close to what they were expecting Jesus to say. What Jesus says here was not even on their radar. So many times if we read in the book of Mark, Jesus says something that actually catches people, you know, flat footed. And this is one of those occasions. This is a radical departure from the script. And what he was saying in this text would have been absolutely shocking to them. In fact, Danny Aiken in his commentary notes that it is almost impossible to overstate how shocking these words are because what he was saying had serious implications. Like, for instance, the promise of God's redemption for his people is not going to come by political means as they expected. It's going to come by the blood of Christ. That's what's being reflected here. Right? Notice it says, my blood. This is the truth that Jesus actually has been alluding to and talking to them about. If you remember the three times he was telling them right, that he's going to be arrested and he's going to die. This right here is, is the fulfillment of, of God's promise of redemption. This is a picture of God's redemption through the blood of Christ. Now the next thing I want you to notice is the phrase my blood of the covenant. You take that phrase that he says there and you combine that with the fact that they're celebrating the Passover and what you need to realize is all these men would have immediately and suddenly been taken back to Exodus chapter 24 verse 8 in their minds which reads and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. You see, Jesus was declaring that his blood was not only for redemption, but it was the blood that inaugurates the new covenants. The new covenant, the covenant that God had promised long ago. Again, Jesus' words would have reminded the disciples. He says things to take them back to the Scriptures. And His words would have reminded Him of the words that they would have found in Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant that they broke though I was their husband declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no no longer shall each, each one of them teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Jesus is declaring the inauguration of the new covenant, the one that has been waited for, the better covenant. You see, the old covenant that they've been living under was a type and a shadow of the greater covenant that's been promised, which is what Paul tells us in his letter to the Hebrews. He says... They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tents, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then Paul quotes all of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah 31, and he says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Christ is taking the old symbols of the Passover supper and he's interpreting them in a new way and he's declaring that he is bringing in the new covenant and he's doing so in a way that makes all things new. What a radically different reality that he's ushering in christ makes all things new he brings in the new covenant he brings in the new kingdom he makes hearts of those who he's going to save he makes them new prepared for the kingdom he's declaring here that there's about to be a radical change in the world one of epic proportions one they would not have been expecting and then notice number three it says This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This expression, many here, would have reminded them of the promise that is found in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, by the way, is the gospel of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is typically an entire chapter of the Bible that the Jews never read in their yearly reading. They skip right over it. You know why? Because if you take that and actually write it down and don't give it a reference and you say, hey, who's this about? Most people, even Jewish people, go, that's about Jesus. Isaiah 53, listen to these words. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. <laughs> right? He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. You hear the gospel in that? And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many. Notice the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. You see, the cup is the promise of the forgiveness of sins. This is the thing that we do remember about the cup. This is the thing that we hold on to. We see it is the will of God to crush his son. By the way, if there is a verse in the Bible that does not want to fit inside of my head, it's that one. And it actually is better translated that it pleased God to crush him. Why would he crush him? For someone like me? doesn't make any sense but it's the truth that we hold on to. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the will of God to crush his son. And the willing, suffering servant gave his life to bear the the sins for many. The other thing that we need to see is the cup is also a picture of a real sacrifice. The sacrifice of God. Jesus is going to have to die so that we might live. Jesus is at the doorstep of giving his very real life to the point where we're going to hear him pray if this cup could pass from me then let it be if not let your will be done and not mine you see what Jesus is doing here as he's taken the redemptive history that God had been sovereignly working throughout time and space and the promises that God has made in the past and he draws them all together in this one metaphor connected to the Passover. Jesus draws all these things together and points the promises of God that he made to redeem his people all right here. And what Jesus is pointing at is not... Just the exodus of old, he's pointing to the greater exodus. That narrative means something even now for us. The Israelites were freed from Egypt by the power of God in the past. God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt. Christ will redeem his people from bondage and sin and the evil one. You see, God made a covenant with Israel so that they could stay in the physical promised land. Christ is inaugurating a new covenant that guarantees that those who belong to him will live forever in the greater promised land of heaven. Jesus is using these familiar symbols and stories to point toward his work and what he's about to complete that will fulfill all of these things. And that true hope is not just for the few Jews, but for the whole world world. The many. Because Jesus will shed his blood for the many. Remember the promise made to Abraham's seed. The promised Messiah would be a blessing not just for the Jews but to the nations. Now there's more I could say about the cup but as you already know I have a tendency to go too long anyway. So we'll go ahead and move on to verse 25. And Jesus says something, for the most part of my Christian life has been perplexing to me. It took me a while to really figure this out. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now there's a number of thoughts on this. Some people think that what Jesus means is he didn't actually participate in the Passover dinner. But that doesn't really fit the context of the or, or the history here. What Jesus is referring to is the fact that Jesus refuses to drink the fourth and final cup. This is the cup of the promise of a renewed relationship with God, and it's also called the cup of consummation. Jesus is saying, I will not drink the fourth cup until I drink it again in the kingdom of God. Or in other words, I will not drink that final cup until I return when it's finished. As Trumper Longman puts it, this vow of Jesus consecrated himself for his sacrificial death, but it also held out the promise of victory and salvation. He will drink the cup new with a new redeemed community in the kingdom of God. He will keep will drink the cup of consummation when all of his redemptive works are finally actually consummated. And when finally all believers live forever in the new promised land, in the very presence of God forever. You see, there's so much more to this text than taking a little piece of bread and a thimble full of grape juice It means so much more. We have, now, we have in these symbols, the symbols themselves that point to the climax of redemptive history. That's what we're taking, is pointing forward to the climax of redemptive history. We have the reality of the new covenant that has been pointed to by the old covenant. We have the covenant promises being fulfilled in Christ. We have God himself inaugurating the covenant by his own blood. And we have the promise of God himself in Jesus Christ to perpetually be with us through it all. See, this is a sacred, sacred ordinance of earth-shattering implications This is something, I think, that we as a church could grow in our reverence toward. I know from me. I know from me. I'm convicted by that. As I study it more and more, I'm convicted by that. But with that, notice verse 26, and we'll wrap up with this. And then they had sung a hymn. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. One of the things that's often overlooked and also because one of the things about our Bibles, they tend to make decisions for us and they split things up and put different headings in and they separate things that maybe should go together. What we don't realize is that it was traditional for them when they finished their meal was to sing a hymn. And what they would sing is the second part of what's called the, that Hallel, you know, which is Psalms 115 through 18. And there is a part of the section of that hymn as they sang that must have just rever- reverberated in Christ's ears and I think then helps to cement in our minds what Jesus was doing. And the words are Psalm one eighteen fourteen 14 through 17, and I'll just read them for you. Just, just listen to the words. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the Righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That is what the Lord's table is about. We're recounting. Right. This is not a trite little ritual. We are recounting together. The deeds of the Lord. The very real historical deeds of the Lord that have changed the world. The deeds of the Lord that have changed this wretched heart of stone into a heart of flesh that aches for him. The deeds of the Lord that makes all things new. The deeds of the Lord that fixes broken relationships. The deeds of the Lord that has the power to deliver the worst of the worst into his very presence forever and ever. That is what we are recounting when we we take those elements. It's not just a little thing we add on to the end of service once a month. It is really at the heart of what we're about as Christians. We're looking heavenward to Christ and saying, Lord, we remember what you've done. And it's real to us. Now we deny that his physical body is present in the elements. That's a heresy. But we know that the symbolism still points to a reality that is never changing. And it reminds us that their hope is not just something that we think about or wish. It is a hope that is real, that happened in time in space. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for the Lord's table. Praise the Lord for all that it means. Praise the Lord that he loved us so much to give it to us. In fact, let me just read for you the words of J.C. Ryle. The benefits of the Lord's Supper confer, confers, or the benefits confers are spiritual not physical. The effect must be looked for with in our inward man. It was intended to remind us by the visible, tangible emblems of bread and wine that the offering of Christ's body and blood for us on the cross is the only atonement for sin and the life of a believer's soul. It was meant to help us, to help our poor, weak faith, to closer fellowship with the crucified Savior, and to assist us in spiritually feeding on Christ's body and blood. It is an ordinance for redeemed sinners and not for unfallen angels. By receiving it, we publicly declare our sense of guilt and our hope to live in Him, using it In the spirit we find our repentance deepened, our faith increased, our hope brightened, our love enlarged, our besetting sin weakened, and our graces strengthened. It will draw us nearer to Christ. I don't think I can say anything better. The Lord's table is one of those things as a church I think we need to grow in our reverence for as we study it together. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.